Okay, we are live. Welcome to today's program. And today, I want to talk to you about the Protestant Reformation. Um, this past Sunday was typically what people look at as being Reformation Sunday. And uh, I was in the middle of uh, a series on the Ten Commandments, and I really wanted to preach the next message uh, on the Fifth Commandment. But for the month of November, I'm going to do a series of sermons on the solos of the Reformation, which I have preached on before. Uh, but I'm starting from scratch. I'm not going to. I'm not going to purposely, at least, duplicate any material from the past that I've done on the the five solos of the Reformation. And I'm excited to do this. I'm excited to preach on on these. And so today, I wanted to just talk about why that's so important, and why is it that uh, Reformed churches and really Christian churches today go back to the 16th century, and um, there's a lot of confusion about what we mean by the 16th century. We're not talking about the 1600s. The 16th century um, is the 1500s. So uh, once you get into 1500, you're now in the 16th century because you're you're in the years of the 16th century. So uh, the 1600s are the 17th century. Right now, we are in the 21st century. So why do we do this? Why do we go back to the 16th century and we talk about these great reformers? You know, I dressed up as Martin Luther um, and some of my uh, fellow uh, guys here at church dressed up as other reformers. We had one that dressed up as John Calvin, that was Ryan, and uh, one dressed up as John Knox. And <laughs> the guy that was dressed up like John Knox, I mean, literally looked exactly like I think John Knox would have looked. In fact, let me see if I can pull up his picture here. And I'll, I'll just put it on the... Uh, the camera if I can get to it where is those pictures um we had a great time we had a pig pig roast uh <laughs> yeah this is a fellow at church does that not look just like you would think John Knox looked okay and uh there's the guy that did uh John Calvin that played John Calvin that's supposed to be uh who is that supposed to be um I'm not sure who John was supposed to be <laughs> he looks like Obi-Wan Kenobi um, but anyway, uh, then there was, uh, William Tyndale and, uh, oh my gosh, that was, I'm the worst Luther ever. That's just, <laughs> that, they, see, my, my melon is kind of big. So that the tonsure just, it just wasn't working for me at all. So yeah, anyway, we had a great time. Uh, the Reformation pig roast. Um, uh, yeah, John, John was just a monk. That's right. He was supposed to be a monk, but everyone said he looked like Obi-Wan Kenobi. So why do we talk about the Reformation all the time? Why do we talk about the Reformation all the time? Well, there's a lot that could be said about this. Um, I've been preparing my uh, sermon on sola fide, justification by faith alone, uh, for this coming Sunday morning. And in preparation to do that, I've been looking at uh, Roland Bainton. Roland Bainton's book, Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther. And this book is so great. I, I read it when I was in seminary, and... Um, I need to uh, read it again. In fact, I might just read it to my children uh, for family devotions, and we'll look at some of the key passages that are brought up in the book. But Roland Bainton, Here I Stand. I'm going to put a, 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 the title with the author. Roland Bainton was, is a wonderful historian, and he, he takes you back. I mean, you, when you read this book, you feel like you live in medieval Europe, you know, in the 16th century, because you, you feel like you're in a world peopled by angels and demons and um, everyone back then, I mean, the most important thing in everybody's life back then was your salvation. That's what everybody t thought about all the time. 
uh, was how, how are things going to go, you know, for you when, when you die? And so everybody was a member of, you know, the, the church at the time because there was the, the Christendom and, and that whole thing. But the thing is, as I said, there is so much that could be said about this, but Martin Luther comes on the stage um, at a very important time uh, in church history. In fact, I'm going to put another link up here uh, to the Reformation Overview series. I used to get this. I used to borrow this from the library, um, at the public library. And uh, I'm going to put a link to the, uh, to the whole series. Sincerely, I would encourage you uh, to watch these on YouTube with your family and discuss them. We've had some great discussions. We've watched the one about John Wycliffe, and then we watched the one about John Huss. And then last night we watched the one about Luther, and there's three more. There's one more about uh, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin there in um, uh, France and in Switzerland, which is where um, uh, Calvin eventually goes. But in Zurich is where Ulrich, Ulrich Zwingli was from. And then there's uh, another video about um, the Anabaptists, about the Radical Reformations, and a, a fellow named Michael Sadler. Um, and then there's one about William Tyndale. Uh, but those those uh, programs, they're free. Here's the, a link to the first one. They're all linked together into a playlist. So please do click on that. I mean, if I can remember when I'm done with today's program, I'll put a link to it. But they were just done um, so well. And they're, they're kind of dated. They're probably, they're probably done in the 80s or 90s maybe. Um, but they were a wonderful overview of what the key issues were and what these uh, men were like. And, you know, Wycliffe comes in the 1300s. So he's, he's in the 1370s, really, I believe is when he dies and uh, Wycliffe um, challenged uh, the church there in England. Um, he taught that if the church were was becoming corrupt, that the state uh, had the right to come in and correct it, and that was a big deal. It was called his theory of dominion, and that was a that got him in a lot of trouble. And eventually, it got him uh, thrown out of Oxford. He didn't have access to the library, and they they censored him and. Um, basically threw him out of that area, and he and some of his friends ended up in a little town called Lutterworth. And that's where Wycliffe started praying, you know, what am I supposed to do now? What am I supposed to do with, with my life now? And that's where he got the big idea. Let's translate the Bible into English. And so they did. And these Lollards, they were called the poor preachers, They it would take them a year to make um, one hand-written copy of the Bible. It's absolutely it just makes me want to cry and shudder to think of those handwritten Bibles being burned by um, the evil, you know, Inquisition and, and other enemies that they had uh, that were after them. And um, you know, Wycliffe was a really, a really special person. He was a, a wonderful uh, man of God. He's, he's called the Morning Star of the Reformation because he's over a hundred years before Luther. And then usually after him, uh, you have John Huss there in the Czech uh, Republic. And uh, John Huss got himself in all kinds of trouble for questioning the sale of indulgences. And he also translated the Bible into the Czech language. And um, Prague, where he was, was put under interdict. That means, like, basically what, the, what interdict meant was Rome would, like, turn off the spigot of grace to your area. So... They would close down all the churches, no no burials, no funerals, no sacraments, no confession, none of that. And so eventually uh, Huss um, went to the Council of Constance uh, in 1415. And the Council of Constance was convened because there were at one there were two popes, and at one point three, who were selling indulgences to armies to take up the sword against each other. 
And so that's known historically as the Great Western Schism. It's very important that you keep that distinct in your thinking from the East-West Schism. Um, that's in the mid-11th century, in the, in the 1000s between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, where you have Eastern Orthodoxy. And that's largely over the Filioque Clause and all that kind of stuff, and I, I don't want to get into that. The Great Western Schism is when the papacy was moved from Rome to Avignon in France, um, and for about 70 years, uh, nobody knew for sure who the right pope was. And there were two popes, and at one point, three. Uh, that were hurling anathemas at each other and selling indulgences to take up the sword against the other. So here you have the Council of Constance that was convened to try to get rid of and deal with the, the papal schism here, where you've got two and, and three popes um, at, at odds with each other, and enter into the fray this little priest from, uh, from Prague uh, who uh, is questioning basic issues. So they just didn't have time for this. And uh, to make a long story short, they ended up murdering him. And it was murder. Uh, he was not guilty of the things that they accused him of. Um, uh, Hust never denied the transubstantiation. He did not deny um, that doctrine, although apparently witnesses were bribed to lie about him and to say that he did. And so because he refused to um, recant of something he'd never taught, uh, he, was, he was tied to a stake and burned to death. And uh, I wanted to read if I can if I can find it. I'm remembering um, uh, John Huss's uh, final prayer that he wrote in a letter uh, to some to someone. Um, uh, let's see. For for you, not I cannot follow the. I used to have it memorized or most of it memorized because it's so. Yeah, yeah. Here it is. Here it is. Oh, okay. This is this is a jewel. This is a jewel. Um, of church history, we need to remember uh, John Huss before he was uh, before he was murdered, and uh, I mean, imagine dying like that, being tied to a stake and burned to death. Uh, there, there's few things I can um, imagine that would be more awful than to die like that. Here, here's what Huss wrote before this: "Quote, O loving Christ, draw us weaklings after Thyself." For if thou drawest us not, we cannot follow thee. Give me a courageous spirit, that it may be ready. If the flesh is weak, let thy grace go before. Proceed in the middle, and follow. For without thee, we can do nothing. But indeed, for thy sake, we can go to a cruel death. Give me a ready spirit, a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, and a perfect love, that for thy sake, we may lay down our life with all patience and joy. Amen. And in the documentary, they actually give his words, uh, his final words, um, where they gave him one final chance to recant, and he said, I call God to witness that all I have written and preached has been to rescue souls from sin. So he was, he was something special, and it's, it's terrible to think um, that he died for uh, the gospel. He died for his faith, and um, he did so with such courage. He died singing. Uh, when they lit the fire. So that's in 1415. So that's 100 years before the 95 Theses uh, that Luther um, nails to the church door there in, in Wittenberg. So John Huss uh, comes and he starts questioning things, but then Luther is really the sledgehammer. Luther is the one who goes to the root of the issue. And the root of the issue was always a false gospel. 
The root of the issue was always that Roman Catholicism did, back then and to this day, preaches a false gospel. And that has to be said. I know that that's not conducive to our modern sensibilities, but I want to say as clearly as I can that every single person who has ever died trusting what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about justification has gone to hell. Every person that has ever died believing what the Roman Catholic religion teaches about salvation has been lost and gone to hell. Because what they teach is that in the final analysis, you are justified before God by your good works that you do with the help of infused grace. And that is not true. That is not what scripture teaches. And it was when Luther's superiors at that monastery sent him away to study scripture that he finally discovered it. He finally saw the truth. Now, I have a book in my library. I think it's out of print. And um, I've been able to find out of print copies of it. It's called Luther on Justification by Robin Lever. Uh, you might be able to find a copy of this um, if you're, uh, if God's providence uh, favors you. Luther on Justification by, um, whoops, let me see if I can spell that right, Justification by Robin Lever. It is outstanding. It's a wonderful book because Luther did want to write a book on justification, but he, he didn't have time to do it. So what Lever does is he goes through the, you know, the 55 volume uh, set of Luther's works and pulled out some of the best stuff on justification. But I wanted to read just a couple of segments of this about uh, Luther and the issue of justification sola fide. Uh, sola fide means faith alone. Of course, the, the Latin word sola means alone. Fide means faith. But listen to what Lever says. This is on page 18. The controversy centered around this four-letter word, sola, although in this particular instance, to be grammatically correct, it ought to be solum, as Luther points out. His opponents criticized him for adding the word to the biblical text. Their argument was that as the word or its equivalent is not there in the Greek, so it should be absent from the German translation. Okay, so Luther added the word sola to Romans 3.28. Now, Romans 3.28, uh, Paul says they're giving it in English, Therefore, uh, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, and Luther added, added the word solum to that, faith alone. Okay, Here he, here's what Luther said in response to his critics. Here in Romans 3.28, I know very well that the word solum is not in the Greek or Latin text. The papists do not have to teach me that. It is a fact that these four letters, sola, are not there. And these blockheads stare at them like cows at a new gate. At the same time, they do not see that it conveys the sense of the text. It belongs there um, It belongs there if the translation is to be clear and vigorous. I wanted to speak German, not Latin or Greek, since it was German I had undertaken to speak in translation. And this is his continuing argument. Although sola is not absolutely necessary in this verse, its use makes the phrase without works of the law, abundantly clear. And I, I tell you, I've had to say this over and over and over again to people. People are like, well, the, the, the word sola or the, even the, the Greek term manon or manos is not used there. It doesn't say faith alone. And I, I've said again and again, if we're justified by faith apart from works, then we're justified by faith alone. That's what the Belgic Confession actually makes that argument. Therefore, the, the Apostle Paul writes that we are justified by faith apart from works. In other words, by faith alone. 
And what you need to understand is what we're really saying when we say that we're justified by faith alone. Justified by faith alone, or faith in Christ apart from works. What that really means is this, that what is going to get you past the final judgment into heaven is the righteousness that was achieved and performed by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. Okay, here's the issue. Let me summarize it as, as clearly as I know how. Here's our problem. God is righteous. God is holy. God is just. And we are not. We are not holy. We are not righteous. We are not just. We fall short. We are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. And in our hearts and in our lives, we are filled with iniquity and vice. And the holy God has inflicted his curse upon us. God is holy, God is righteous and just, and we are none of those things. How in the world am I ever going to stand before the tribunal, the final judgment of God at the last day, when I know that that God requires and demands perfect righteousness for him to justify anybody? What am I going to do? Now, the Roman Catholic Church said, well, you can't be good enough without the help of Christ and the, the grace of Christ and the cross of Christ and the, the, the grace of God. But added to that faith, added to that grace, added to that Christ must be the, the personal contribution of the sinner without which God will not declare you just. Now, that's all the difference in the world. Because what the gospel of Jesus Christ is saying is that the only righteousness that has ever been achieved by a human being in the entire history of the world is that righteousness that was achieved and performed by Jesus Christ. The only righteousness that can meet the requirement of God's holiness that's ever been achieved by a human being in the entire history of the world is that righteousness that was achieved and performed by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. That's where the word alone comes from, in justification by faith alone. Because when we say we're justified by faith alone, what we really mean by that is that we are justified by the righteousness of Christ alone. And that only his righteousness is sufficient to save us from the avenging wrath of God against our sins. It is a righteousness that is achieved by someone else, vicariously, in a substitutionary manner, in the stead and place of his people. And so when we say we're justified by faith and not by works, we mean that it is Christ's righteousness in the end that will get us into heaven and nothing, nothing that we do. And immediately people think, well, that's terrible, that's dangerous. People are going to just live like the devil and think they can go to heaven. And of course, the biblical answer to that is, can't happen. If someone truly is justified, it's because they've been united to Christ. They've been foreknown. They've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. God begins that great work of dethroning the power of sin and, and sanctifying that person. But that's not justification. And that's not how we get into heaven. Listen to what it goes on to say here. I inserted the word solemn into Romans 3.28. Actually, the text itself and meaning 
of St. Paul urgently require and demand it. For in that passage, he is dealing with the main point of Christian doctrine, namely, that we are justified by faith in Christ without any works of the law. And Paul cuts away all works so completely as even to say that the works of the law, though it is God's law and word, do not help for justification. But when all works are so completely cut away, and that must mean that faith alone justifies, whoever would speak plainly and clearly about this cutting away of works will have to say, faith alone justifies us and not works. The matter itself, as well as the nature of the language, demand it. You know, uh, there's a few people that might be watching this who knows who will know who I'm talking about. There's a fellow that we've run into downtown Kingsport witnessing named Scott. And Scott um, is a nice fella. He's uh, eager to talk. Uh, he's also um, one of the most thoroughly confused individuals I've ever talked to about anything uh, spiritual. And Scott does not understand the gospel at all. He thinks that we're saved. We get into heaven by keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and keeping the Feast of Passover and by being circumcised and by obeying the Ten Commandments and everything else. And I asked him over and over again, so how does Jesus figure in any of this? And of course, I found out he's not Trinitarian. He doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, so he doesn't even have the right Jesus. And uh, <clears throat> talking to him about all this stuff, he immediately, the, the first thing he said to me, the first thing he went after was justification by faith alone. He's like, oh, you faith alone guys. The Bible never says we're justified by faith alone. And I, I said to him, I said, Scott, you're right. It doesn't. You got me. How about from now on, I'll just say faith apart from works. Is that good? And it never came up again. Because <laughs> faith apart from works means faith alone, doesn't it? But it was very funny. I said, Scott, you got me. You, you beat me on that one. It never says faith alone. It says faith without works. Faith apart from works. Faith apart from works of law. Not by deeds of righteousness. Not by works as anyone should boast. So from now on, I'm just going to say faith without works. How's that? And he just grinned. He had nothing to say in response to that. Because if we're saved and we're justified by faith and not by works, then it's by faith alone. Which means, ultimately, at the end of the day, that we get into heaven by Christ's righteousness alone. That's really what justification by faith alone is all about. Now, why do we emphasize this so much? Well, because the New Testament does. And because the Bible does. Paul calls down the curse of God twice in Galatians 1, 6-9. And he even says, even if I come back and tell you something different, don't believe me. Let me be anathema. If an angel from God comes to you and tells you that, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also have to do this, 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 and this to get into heaven, don't believe it. May that angel be damned. May that angel be sent straight to hell. Why is this so important? And what did the reformers say about this, really following the apostles in scripture? What do they say about this? Here's what Lieber points out here. some great quotes from Luther. In a multitude of metaphors, Luther explains the importance of the doctrine of justification. It is the proposition of primary importance, he called it, because Christ wants us to concentrate our attention on this chief doctrine, our justification before God, in order that we may believe in him. It is the cardinal doctrine of justification by faith in Christ, the true and chief article of Christian doctrine. This doctrine is the chief intention of the book of Acts of, of the Acts of the Apostles and the author's principal reason for writing it. Justification is the pure doctrine of faith and the one doctrine of Christian righteousness. This article of, of doctrine 
is the head and cornerstone which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church. Without it, the church of God cannot subsist for one hour. He's right. That's why Paul wrote an inspired scripture in Galatians chapter 2. When he heard this false teaching, he said, We didn't yield subjection to them even for an hour. We did not yield subjection to it even for one hour hour, let alone for years and years and years, the way that some Presbyterian denominations tolerate stuff like that. It's just wrong to do that. Says Luther, on this article rests all that we teach and practice against the Pope, the devil, and the world. The doctrine of justification is, in its Latin formula, articulus stantis vel cadentis ecclesia, the article of faith that decides whether a church is standing or falling. As one theologian wrote, quote, for the doctrine of justification is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. When Atlas falls, everything that rested on his shoulders comes crashing down too. End quote. Luther never tires of explaining that where the doctrine of justification by faith is understood, there the spiritual life of the church is really alive in Jesus Christ. But where justification is unknown, there's no spiritual life at all. He wrote this, quote, A token or a painted golden is not the real thing. It is only a representation. In fact, it is worthless and a fraud if it is given or considered as a real golden, while a genuine golden is such in truth and without deception. So the life, work, and righteousness of the conceited saints is, in comparison with the righteousness and work of the grace of God, only a semblance and a deadly harmful fraud if it is held to be the real thing. This is not the truth, but the real truth is that of God, who gives the genuine and fundamental righteousness, namely, faith in Christ. <clears throat> and he goes on from there. He says, where this single article remains pure, Christendom will remain pure, in beautiful harmony, and without any schisms. But where it does not remain pure, it is impossible to repel any error or heretical spirit. <clears throat> and he, It's a wonderful book. Uh, I would highly recommend it. And so that's the, the beating heart of the Reformation. That is the, the real cause there, um, what it was uh, really all about. But I also want to point out that the first great written um, debate of the Reformation was over the issue of predestination and unconditional election. And Martin Luther wrote his great book, The Bondage of the Will, over against Desiderius Erasmus, the Roman Catholic humanist scholar who wrote a book called On the Freedom of the Will. And Luther understood the importance of unconditional election uh, just as much as, um, as any Calvinist today. And uh, his position, um, unfortunately, it seems to have fallen a little bit by the wayside in Orthodox Lutheranism. And I wanted to read a quotation um, uh, from... Uh, the bondage of the will, where he commends Erasmus for understanding this at the end of the book. He says, um, In this, moreover, I give you great praise, and proclaim it. Luther talking to Erasmus about this issue of whether the will is involved in and of itself to save us or justify us, or whether God does it all because of his predestining and unconditional electing grace. He says to Erasmus, In this, moreover, I give you great praise, and proclaim it. You alone, in preeminent distinction from all others, have entered upon the thing itself, that is, the grand turning point of the cause, and have not wearied me with those irrelevant points about popery, purgatory, indulgences, and other like baubles, 
rather than causes, with which all have hitherto tried to hunt me down, though in vain, you and you alone saw what was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned, and therefore you attacked the vital part at once, for which, from my heart, I thank you. What is the cause he's talking about here? The Protestant Reformation itself. <coughs> Pardon me. He's saying, you, in contradiction to all my opponents, understood what this was all about. You understood what we were really arguing about. Does the will of man do something or nothing in the matter of salvation? And Luther's great written work of the Reformation, The Bondage of the Will, is really a treatise defending the fact that original sin makes man a slave of sin, and man is not able to liberate himself from that slavery to sin. God unconditionally elects by name who he's going to save, and then in his appointed time, God makes that person born again, and then that person will come to faith in Christ and believe. And so, unconditional election was really the heart of the Reformation, justification by faith alone simply being an extension of that. Justification is by faith alone, so that justification would be by grace, so that salvation would be by grace alone. Okay, I want to see real quick who's over here. There's Lillaby. Hey there. I hope, uh, all right. So Lily Hannah Malachi there, that's good to hear. There's Paul Garvey from England and Sean O'Connor. And there's Susan. Howdy there. Sean O'Connor. Yeah, you like those costumes? It was strangely hot. It was so hot that day. It was just bizarre because it's really cold now. Um, but we had to wear the um, the outfits, those uh, those brown uh, burlap outfits that were uncomfortable. But it, we had a great time. We, we each gave a little speech about who we were and what our main contribution to the Reformation was. It was great. It was a real fun time. And the kids got a bunch of candy, so they were all happy. Um, so there's, uh, late, but everyone, hi. oh, hey, Amanda, what's up? And there's the Cafe Queen and Robert Robertson. That's right, Abraham's faith made him righteous in God's eyes. I'm an angel of Jesus called by him. I heard his voice. I said, the obedience is required, not forgetting heaven, but showing the Lord how much we love him. Amen. That's right. We, we, uh, obey the Lord and we seek to put his commandments <clears throat> into action uh, out of love and gratitude and thankfulness to him for our salvation. Now, I want to look at some key passages. Passages of scripture that were um, very important to uh, Martin Luther and really to all Christians throughout all of church history. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 31. Um, one of the commentators on the book of Romans, I think it might have been Leon Morris, said this is the most important paragraph ever written in the history of the world. <laughs> so, um, he wrote this. It says, says the word of God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, and that means any, any part of the law, the Ten Commandments, the dietary laws, ceremonial laws, whatever, by the deeds of God's law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was never intended by God to give man uh, eternal life, especially once man fell into sin. Now, Adam, prior to the fall, could have kept God's law, but he didn't do that, and once he sinned against God justification by keeping the law ceased to be possible. It's, it's off the table as an option now. It can't be done because the law requires perfection from us. And since we start out already sinful, the law is not going to help you get into heaven. It can't. Not even as a Christian, the law can in no way, shape, or form make you right with God. No flesh will be justified 
in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And real quick, what is justification? Justification is an act of God as judge. It's the, it's the opposite of being condemned. Uh, often in trials, uh, if there's no jury or whatever, uh, the judge will simply hear all the evidence and render a verdict. And he'll say, you know, either guilty or not guilty, justified or condemned. And that's the way it is with us. Every human being in the world, I don't care who they are, whether they're interested in the things of God or not, whether they like the Bible or not, whether they ever go to church or not, whether they are willing to listen to a gospel presentation or they uh, tell you to get lost and tear the track up and hand it back to you, every one of them is going to be there on the day of judgment. And they're either going to be justified or condemned. And anyone who goes to the day of judgment relying on their obedience to God's commandments is not going to be justified. Why? Because the divine revelation that God has given to his people and in scripture says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No one can be justified before God by being good enough, by their good works. And you know what? I was just rereading uh, some stuff from uh, Roland Bainton as part of the front matter of my sermon on justification for this coming Sunday. And that poor man, Luther, I mean, fasting three days at a time, not even, not even eating even a crumb for three straight days, and, and nearly freezing himself to death by sleeping in the freezing cold in Germany um, with no blankets on a hard floor and working himself to death and wearing out confessors and confessing every sin he could think of. And this guy would sit in confessional boxes with a copy of the Ten Commandments and then a list of the seven deadly sins. And then he would literally start from his childhood and go through everything he could think of for hours on end. And even one of his confessors finally says to him, Sir, if you want to be forgiven, come in here with something real to confess, like that you murdered your parents or blasphemy or adultery or something. You know, all these peccadilloes that you confess, you know, why are you doing this to yourself? But for Luther... It was, real, it was real simple. If the law of God requires that we confess every sin and we're only forgiven of the ones that we confess, then we have to remember them all. And if we don't remember them all, they're not forgiven. And if we die with unforgiven sin, God will righteously, the righteous judge, will condemn us. And so he kept at it. And this guy absolutely tortured himself. Why, why was he doing all that? And why did he do all these works and make sure he, he was as poor as he could be, he didn't have anything and give, give away everything? Why did he do all that? He was trying to become righteous. Because he knew that God is holy and God is righteous. And he knew that he wasn't. And so he did all this work and all this stuff and all these exercises and all this self-torture. But in his heart he knew he was still lost because the law of God said so. The law condemned him. Those Ten Commandments. I mean, imagine sitting there. He never really had even studied the Bible, but he, he knew the Ten Commandments. I mean, if all you're doing is sitting there staring at those, that's not going to give you any sense of peace with God. The law brings about wrath, Romans 4.15 says. The law is our tutor. The law is like the teacher that comes and takes you by the hand and walks you away from your pile of good works, your pile of, of scubalon, your pile of, of rubbish, and shows you here is where righteousness is. It's in Jesus Christ. And then my favorite Luther anecdote is when he discovered the gospel from studying Romans and studying these passages. And 
he, he read Galatians over and over, and he, and he read Romans over and over and over again. And Stalpitz is saying to him, is his mentor, Johann Stalpitz there in the monastery, so Martin, what, so we don't need purgatory, and we don't need Mary, and we don't need works, and we don't need fasting, and we don't need confession, and we don't need priests, and popes, and purgatory, and all this stuff that you dismiss as mere crutches. Without all of that, what's left? What will you put in its place? And Luther said, Christ. A man only needs Jesus Christ. A man only needs Jesus Christ. That's what the Christian faith's all about. You know, I've been listening to a lecture series by Daryl Hart, uh, who's an OPC uh, scholar, on um, uh, J. Gresson Machen. And <clears throat> they're, they're going through the same stuff. I mean, the liberals had reduced the Christian faith to nothing more than ethics. What, what does it mean to be a Christian and to spread the kingdom of God? It just means to alleviate poverty and to be nice to people and give people religious experiences. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is, in Scripture, it's about God creates the world. God creates man. Man rebelled against God. That's why there's death everywhere. That's why there's so much suffering. That's why our marriages are a mess. That's why uh, kids rebel. That's why there's drugs and alcohol and murder and idolatry of every kind. That's why not only are we victims of other people's sins, but we are perpetrators. We sin against people all the time. We, we're not all just victims, although we are victims of other people's sins, but we are the ones that hurt other people all the time. Man rebelled. Man is evil. Man is a vile, hell-deserving creature now. That's what happened. God created the world. Man rebelled against sin, against God and sin, and embraced a life of wickedness and turned his back on God. And that's why our lives are just a mess. And that's why there's so much wrong with us. And in our minds and our hearts, we have these consciences. We work so hard to turn off the volume of our conscience and and yet it's still there, it's still condemning us. And so God makes the decision not to leave man in his sins, although he could have done that. God could have chosen to leave us in our sins. Let, leave us in our sins and let us all go to hell where we deserve and where we want to be. But he didn't. He promised Adam and Eve and the serpent himself there in the Garden of Eden that one day the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, is going to crush your head. Is going to undo this mess. That's why all those genealogies are there in scripture. That's why the genealogies are there. That's why you see bloodshed all the way along. Why is that? Why is there so much bloodshed around the, the genealogy all the way down to the Lord Jesus? Because Satan was there in Genesis 3.15. He heard God make that promise. And so Satan is following along. He's following that trail. He's trying his best to cut off the line to the Messiah. And that's why when the Israelites were in Egypt, what did Pharaoh order? The murder of all male offspring. Well, why did he do that? Because the devil's involved. Satan's trying his best to snuff out that line. Why did Cain kill Abel? Same thing, trying to snuff out that line. Why was it when Jesus was born, Herod, what does Herod do? He orders the death, the murder of every male child two years old and under in that entire area. Why do you do that? He is an agent of Satan trying to snuff out the Messiah. But he always fails because God is able to accomplish his purpose. 
the Christian faith is it's not a religion of moral improvement or, or ethics or just be nice to each other. It's about divine rescue. It is God entering into human history at a real point of time in human history, entering into that broken covenant of works that Adam failed to keep. And in himself and by himself, achieving the very righteousness by which his people will one day enter heaven. That's what Christianity is all about. And that's what the liberals in Mason's time had completely discarded. And that's what the, the progressives in our time have completely discarded. They don't believe that Christianity is about redeeming souls from, from hell and sin any longer. It's about being nice. It's about getting along. It's about... Um, uh, social concerns and social justice. No, it's not. And you'll never see social concerns or justice addressed if people are unregenerate, if we don't preach the true gospel. The true gospel is falling on hard times. It's not preached a whole lot at all anymore. But we have to go back to the Bible like Luther did, like Calvin did, like the Reformers did, like the Westminster Divines did, like Old Princeton did, like Warfield and Hodge and J. Gresson Machen did. Back to the text of scripture. Because that's the only thing we've got that's God-breathed. So Luther, studying Romans. In Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. What is that? The righteousness of God? That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's revealed in the gospel apart from the law, apart from our works, apart from anything we do, apart from any change in us, the righteousness of God is put into our account when we believe in the Lord Jesus, meaning we do not believe in our works anymore. We're not trusting in our good works anymore. We're trusting in the finished work of Christ. That's what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. We have to leave it finished we receive and rest upon him. And people are always wanting to know, well, but, but, but what's my part? What's my part? Uh, here's your part. Sin. The only contribution that we make to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Yeah, but what's our part? We, don't, we have no part. You rest upon the finished work of Christ. Yeah, but what's my part? You rest on the finished work of Christ. Yeah, but what's my part? You rest on the finished work of Christ. Because only his righteousness can save us. And Paul even says in Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, if you could get into heaven by being good enough, then Christ died for nothing. Jesus came into the world and suffered and died precisely because we cannot do what God requires of us. The ultimate testimony to human helplessness is that baby laying in that manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Born with no human father. That is essential to the gospel. If Jesus had a human father like I did, he would have been born with sin just like I was. He had to start out sinless just like the first Adam. And the only way that could happen would be a miraculous conception in the womb of a virgin. And he was born of her with no sin. He enters into that same covenant that Adam broke and he keeps it perfectly. When Jesus is tempted, he doesn't give in to any of it. Jesus never sinned. Never violated God's commandments. And that's why Paul says, look, if you could get into heaven by keeping the law, 
Jesus didn't need to come. He didn't need to die. I don't nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. He died to no effect. He died in vain. The fact that Jesus came, went to the cross and died there, was buried and rose again, came back to life in the same body he was crucified on and walked out of that tomb alive, having abolished and conquered death. The reason he had to do that if we're going to go to heaven is because nothing short of perfect righteousness can justify us before God. That's why Paul says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, black, white, green, orange, polka dot, no human beings going to heaven by being good enough. The law of God shows us our sin. The law of God shows us we need Christ. And it's Christ alone who saves. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Not those who work. Not those who try harder. But those who believe. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means you stop believing in yourself. You stop believing in your works. You stop trusting in any new intentions or good deeds or anything in you or about you and you relinquish all hope of going to heaven into the sovereign hands of God and you rest upon the finished work of Christ. That's the gospel. That's what Christianity is. When ministers go out and the evangelists go out and we talk to people about Christ and we, we call people to repent and believe, that's the message that we preach. Heaven is a free gift, and it can only be received as a free gift, because to do anything to try to earn it is an insult to the holiness of God. Jesus was nailed to that cross and died alone. He doesn't need your chump change or your so-called good works to help save you. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Paul continues there in Romans 3.22b in the second part. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely. Being justified as a gift. You know what that Greek word is? Freely? As a gift? It's the Greek word Dorian. Have you ever known someone named Dorian? The, the name Dorian that people sometimes use? It's from that Greek word. Dorian means freely. Gift. Have you ever gotten a gift? Gotten a gift for Christmas? A gift for your birthday? If you pull out your wallet, alright, how much do I owe you? If that person accepts your money, it's not a gift, is it? It's a gift of God. Purchased by the blood of Christ. And as soon as we think we're doing something to earn it, we destroy it. It's not a gift anymore then. Justification, being declared righteous, is a gift of God. God imputes, credits, he transfers the righteousness of Jesus Christ into your legal account before God so that you have a legal title to go to heaven. And your sin the entirety of it, your original sin that you inherited from Adam, the sinful nature that you have, along with every act of disobedience, every failure to conform to God's law is transferred to Jesus on the cross. Why do you think it was so awful for him? Why do you think he, in the garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, 32, he fell to the ground. He fell to the ground and could not 
stand up. It's actually an iterative and perfect verb. He was falling to the ground in Gethsemane thinking about this. It's the images he keeps trying to get up. He can't even stand up. Abba, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What is he anticipating? He's anticipating being held accountable the next day at the cross for all the lust and pride and anger and envy and plotting and scheming and sexual immorality and adultery and murder and everything else that we're guilty of. He's anticipating it. And it's crushing him. Can't even stand up. The one who walked on water. You gave sight to a man who was born blind. A man who fed 5,000 plus with five barley loaves and two fish in anticipation of becoming the sins of his people and being held legally responsible for them all in the Garden of Gethsemane. He can't even stand up. Falls to the ground and prays. If there's some other way, let's do that. What was God's answer? There is no other way. What did God tell Adam in the Garden of Eden? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Therefore, for us to be saved, what does the substitute have to do? He's got to die. And he can't just die, he's got to die a cursed death, a cursed death by being hung on a tree, hung on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Paul in Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that is written in the book of the law. What does it mean to be of the works of the law? That's a person who's trying to be good enough to go to heaven. They are of the works of the law. What is the divine response? What does scripture say about that? If you're trying to be good enough to go to heaven, you're damned. You're lost. You're under God's curse. Galatians 3, 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. For the the curse of God, the righteous and just punishment of our sins by becoming a curse in our behalf. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To bear the curse of his father against the sins of his beloved sheep. That's why. That's why. That's the gospel. Well, how do we receive that? How how are we right with God? By faith in Christ alone. By believing in him. By pronouncing a curse on ourselves and on our works or anything that we've ever done. And simply resting On the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how we're justified. Justified freely. Doreon. Justified freely. Justified as a gift. By his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The cross work of Christ. Redeems us from hell. Redeems us from the curse. That's the beating heart of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Is a sacrifice that turns away. The wrath of God. The righteous wrath of God. And Paul was so confident of his salvation that he even asks a rhetorical question in Romans 8.33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Now believe me, I know. When we sin, well, we, we sure do feel condemned. We sure feel like, man, how can God put up with me? Well, that's why Jesus died. 
That's why Jesus died. So that no charge of wrongdoing can ever stick. Once a person repents, believes in Jesus, they're justified. They can never be condemned. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now, now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the beating heart of the Christian faith, and that's what the Reformation was all about. And I tell you, do we need a new Reformation today? Yes. It's heartbreaking what's tolerated, that what's taught. And um, I correspond with people on a regular basis who have no assurance, who are, don't know if they're going to heaven or not. They're just, they don't know because they haven't been taught this clearly from the pages of scripture. And so that's why it will always be a big part of my life in ministry. <clears throat> Once every few weeks, you got to go back to this. And you got to preach till you lose your voice. You got to preach with all your heart that Christ alone is what saves us. And we receive his righteousness imputed to us legally by faith in him alone. And we need to die trusting only in his righteousness to get us into heaven. That's what Christianity is. That's what Luther finally saw. That's what he saw. That's what Calvin saw. That's what John Wycliffe saw. That's what John Huss saw. That's what the Puritans saw. That's what Augustine saw. That's the heart of everything else. Justification is a gift. Heaven, eternal life, is a free gift. Can't earn it. Can't deserve it. Can't merit it. But anything you do. Okay, wow. The channel thing blew up over here. Susan K. Hi, I'm really... Well, good. Uh, you're new. I haven't seen you on here. The Old Church Classic Christian Radio Service. You should perish. Um, let's see. <clears throat> you should perish. Uh, yeah, that's the Second Peter 3, 9. It's a commonly misused passage. I should probably do a whole podcast on, um, on the uh, misused text of Scripture. Let's see. Uh, the more we study the word of God, the more we know of his righteousness and the wonder and indescribable love and mercy of God and Christ. The more we will love him, the more we love him, the more we obey him. Yeah, that's right. How do, how do, how do Christ believers fight against sinful temptations? <laughs> With all their heart. You got to be in a church that preaches the word of God and preaches the true gospel. You need to understand the true gospel first. Um, you need to be a, a vigorous student of the word of God. You need to have Christian friends that you talk to and meet with regularly. And you got to get into the Word of God. You got to study constantly. Okay, let's see. Um, all right, I think that's about good. Uh, love y'all. Thanks for watching or for listening, and uh, we'll pick her up next time. And gonna be preaching on the uh, uh, the solos of the Reformation all month. So uh, check check us out there at um, what's our new website? Let me see. Bridwell Heights. Yeah, Bridwell Heights Church. Dot org. I'll put that here. Um, people want to see that, but thank you all for watching or for listening.